Welcome to uh, a new edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. So I was recently in Saskatoon at a dinner sponsored by the Canada West Foundation where we were talking about all of the issues that are affecting Saskatchewan and the prairies in our country. And this woman got up to the microphone. Her name was Sherilyn Jolly Nagel. She runs a farm in Moss Bank with her husband and her family. She grows wheat and chickpeas and canola and lentils and she sits on the board of SAS Power and she was the first woman elected as president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association and she seemed to know a fair amount about farming. (laughs) So I thought she would be a great guest. So Sherilyn, welcome. Thank you for coming. There are so many issues. Well, I thank you for having me (laughs) on my version of our meetup at the (laughs) Canada West dinner. I knew I knew there would be industry people that I was familiar with in my network that would that were there. I didn't realize it would be quite the family dinner that it was. Yeah. And post-COVID, it had been a while since I'd seen a lot of these people. So it was wonderful. It was only missing Christmas presents. It felt yeah, like family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I do remember <laughs> seeing you across the room and thinking, oh, I have never met her before. Isn't that <laughs> going to be exciting? And then they set us up at our tables. Yeah. So I didn't get a chance. However, as I'm leaving and I went to say a few of my gu- my goodbyes, I get a little wave of the finger, like, come over I here. I accosted her. Let's she put did. it that way. Yeah. So I tiptoed over to the to the table and I sat down and she said, where are you from? What what town, what, what community are you farming? And I said, Moss Bank. And then you said to me, I'll find you. And I thought, what did I say? <laughs> so I'm glad it was something good. <laughs> it was because you were brilliant on the very complicated world that is now farming. People, I think, that live... Our country is increasingly urbanized. We know that. And we talk about the rural-urban split. But it's actually really real. Uh, people who live in cities and buy their groceries in big stores do not connect the dots, or at least many of them don't, about how it gets from point A to point B and onto their plates. And there are so many issues. I was reading a piece just this morning, so I want you to react to that a little bit about the size of the farms. Like, there's a few, there's quite a few little farms, and people have a, a day job, and then they kind of farm on the side. But there's 40%, 45% fewer farms in this country than there used to be. So that means the farms are, are getting bigger. And then that changes the lifestyle too. So so I guess that's what I want to get at. You're, did you grow up on a farm? I did yeah. grow up on a farm, which should indicate that I have... Uh, a childhood full of farming memories, uh, but it is one of my biggest regrets that I didn't pay closer attention to or appreciate my childhood growing up on right. the farm. Uh, you know, I, I joke often that of this wonderful story of a little girl who wakes up every morning and packs her lunch and walks through the trees over to the workshop, and in the workshop is her dad and her grandpa who've been there already for hours toiling right. away in the equipment and... She sweeps the floor and she pulls wrenches and she rides around in the tractor for hours. And, you know, the only thing she wants to be when she grows up is a farmer. But that could not be farther <laughs> from the truth for me. That was what probably my What did you want to be story. when you grew up? Anything but a farmer. <laughs> then that is the honest truth. Yeah. I, I remember being in high school so overwhelmed with the possibilities of what I could do in my future. My yeah. parents were always so supportive and we traveled a lot. And if there was one thing I knew for sure when I left high school, it was that I was not going to be a farmer because I didn't see a place for my skill sets, my talents, my interest. For a woman. Well, yeah, yeah, for a woman and also for somebody who is interested. Look, at my interests were uh, myself because yeah. I was you know, 18 years old and I was interested in, in the world around me. Yeah. And I thought, well, I wanted to be on stage. I I was a dancer all through high school. was just (laughs) such an, I had so much energy. So I wanted to to be a dancer. I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to communicate. I wanted to tell stories. And, you know, there's no guidance counselor around that would have said, perhaps you should look into farming. So I didn't. (laughs) And I went off and just did a myriad of other things. And I was, I landed my dream job shortly after high school. And that was being a, 
Latin dance instructor on the beaches of the Turks and Caicos Islands. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly... Okay, now you're on a farm outside Moss Bank. You can imagine the skill set I would bring home, right? <laughs> as, a, as a Latin dance instructor. Every morning, it's harvest right now, every morning we do the cha-cha on our way to the combines. <laughs> so um, what brought you back? Well, it, it was an eye-opening experience for me there. Um, I got I got to know people from all over the world. Yeah. People from every parts of life would come to Club Med on vacation, and I remember very vividly being in a dance class one day. It was a Latin class. We just <laughs> finished doing the mambo, and I had a group of people who had spoke very little English. I mean, it was a it was a French speaking resort and they would speak Italian and they were you know they were from all over and they asked me if I would teach them a country line dance because it was so exciting yeah you know they loved country music and without even hesitating I just marched over to my CD player and popped in my Billy Ray Cyrus and in five minutes we were doing the achy breaky heart and (laughs) <laughs> because I needed no preparation, I suppose, for that class. Because <laughs> they had you a lot more questions. Do that. Yeah, they had a lot more questions for me about that. And I'd brought with me a photo album of a picture of Main Street Moss Bank, my hometown. Yeah. And I started showed them Main Street Moss Bank and I started pointing out all these, you know, the hot spots. Here's the post office and right. the restaurant. <laughs> and oh, there's my brother's truck. I can tell because the muffler's broken. You know? <laughs> and they were floored. I mean, absolutely floored. First of all, I had less people in my hometown than they had in an apartment building. Or at the Club Med. Yeah, they, it was two worlds that yeah. had never really... Yeah, had, and sure. I grew up around everybody that had been in rural Saskatchewan. So it was my chance to share with them how I grew up. And I suppose it was in that moment I realized that I would had absorbed being a child who grew up on a farm more than I realized. And I was in defense of agriculture immediately because they had so many questions yep. about how food was grown. And even that night at dinner, I was the farmer, the farmer, you know, come and sit with us, come and sit. And yep. I was sitting at everybody's table. And from that moment on, I realized there was such a great story to tell about growing food. Mm-hmm. And I loved to tell it. And I went home, I, I left Club Med with my heart full of pride for where yeah. I had come from and I suppose a new energy to find out if there was something about agriculture that I where I could fit in yeah and I uh, had some really great advice from some great mentors of mine and off I went to Olds College campus to be a farmer to learn how to learn how to be a farmer well and that's a big difference because yeah. it used to be just the oldest boy on the farm stayed home and farm because he'd been doing that all his life and maybe the others got to go to school and this and that but now it's big business. Well, like like you said earlier, there, there was a mass exodus yeah. from the farm. There was nobody excited to come back to the family no. farm. In fact, most family farms couldn't afford for the next generation to come home exactly. and, and join them. You had to go and get another job. Maybe it was a trade or maybe it was something else entirely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I... I am now married to my high school sweetheart. Come on, really? <laughs> yeah, really. It's a great story, actually. He was waiting for you in Moss Bank, he, he, was he? Absolutely, he was. <laughs> he, we started, well, the truth is we started dating in grade four, but we it didn't last. So we started <laughs> again dating in grade 11. Yeah. And David was, you know, the opposite of me. If there was one thing he knew for sure, you know, it was, he was going to be a farmer. Yeah. And it's all he ever wanted to do. And that was scary to me. I didn't understand how somebody that young could have that kind of conviction or love for love for a career that... that or don't. how they were going to make a living necessarily. Exactly. And he's yeah. a numbers guy. So it really yeah. was about economics and passion. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, I, I, he inspired me. You know, his love for something, for this industry inspired me. And I thought there must be something that I can find, you know, dig my hands into. Um, I can assure you that it's not. I am not mechanically inclined. <laughs> if actually, right now during harvest, yeah. when they put me on combine or a grain cart, it's probably the only time in my whole life where I just do what I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I have just enough experience to know when the equipment and the harvest is going well and when it is not going well, but not enough experience in that capacity to be a great decision maker right. you know, in the middle of harvest. So, But a lot of people woke up this week last week and they will again next week to have their crops flattened by hail 
yeah. That's the or thing. Or grasshoppers. Or grasshoppers. <laughs> I actually had one in the car the other day. It was making me insane jumping around. But, you know, that's the other thing. Not only do you have all of these, and we'll get to this in a minute, policies made by people in places where they don't really understand agriculture, but then you have Mother Nature who yeah. just can can wreak havoc. I have tried to text her, and she does not <laughs> respond. It, she really is the wild card in all yeah. of it. And that was probably my biggest lesson even going to college, you know, to learn to be a farmer, learn to love agriculture, was that you can, you really can make all the best decisions in the moment. And Mother Nature can throw you some pretty hefty curveballs, yeah. weather and insects and disease pressure. And, and then you have the marketing side of it on top of it, and you have yeah. the geopolitical issues on top of that. Yeah. which make it exponentially more risky. I've seen, you know, from from the generations of farmers before me, I've seen the innovation and the technology expand to the point where I would argue that agriculture is just one of the most technologically advanced industries out there, but we are still so high high at risk. One of these issues where all of these factors come to play, the the climate issue and and the need for farmers or at least the perceived need i think farmers are probably the most ecologically minded uh, working people out there but we've got all of those pressures from governments we've got a war in ukraine and we've got one of the large suppliers of food um, stopped although there's some small movement going out of Odessa and shipping product we've got starvation around the world we've got all of these massive issues and then you have an issue like fertilizer okay which in the business sense Canada kind of has a really Saskatchewan has a particularly good uh, handle on creating and producing fertilizer then we've got a government that says we want to reduce fertilizer use by 30%, or maybe they want to reduce the emissions from fertilizer by 30%. I still can't figure it out. Any way you cut it, it's going to reduce the production of food and probably make it more expensive and have uh, less food to service the world. So when you see policies like that, what, what do you think? Is that just an urban rural mindset is it people who were as brad wall the former premier said first they came for energy now they're coming for agriculture what do you think i think over the last 20 years of my you know short agricultural policy career i've had to be in defense of a lot of controversial innovations mm -hmm. so it's gmos is probably at the top of that right. list genetically modified crops of which we grow and and we appreciate the science behind that but it, we've been in defense of that to the public we've been in defense of glyphosate and a number of various chemicals that we use that are safe for food yeah. operation but we have fought those battles I never would have imagined that fertilizer would be one of those tools that I would have to defend in my farming career. It is truly a nutrient mm -hmm. that the crops that we grow require. And because of fertilizer, because of some of the other sciences we've used, but mainly because of fertilizer, we can grow substantially more on each piece of land. And that, that's an important point to make, and it's overmade all the time, and I'm not sure that consumers really understand what we mean when we say we're doing more with less. Yeah. There isn't more land. Right. And in fact, because of urbanization, because of that mass exodus from rural communities to the cities, urban areas and cities have expanded, and they've taken up some of the best farmland that we have in the country. So what do farmers do? We adapt. We know we have to grow more on less land that we have. So we do it better. We do it more efficiently. We've always done it better and more efficiently. When I'm listening to this fertilizer discussion, I'm mortified, for one, that our leadership has such a poor understanding of where our industry is at. Mm -hmm. But I also feel a tremendous sense of obligation because we never communicated the advancements that we were that we were adopting. So in my farming career, I have seen yields in Durham, as an example, at 30 bushel, 
40 bushel, 50 bushel, 60 bushel, 70 bushel plus in my farming career. Right. Because of the new tools that we have and because of fertilizer. Yeah. So I will, I will fight this battle. When they talk about the hill to die on, fertilizer yeah. is the hill to die on because we cannot operate efficiently or as environmentally sustainable as we have been if the government was to take it away. And that sounds scary. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've heard the minister come back out and try to clarify saying, no, we're not talking about a fertilizer ban. That isn't what we meant. This is just a target. And I'm trying to remain optimistic, but yeah. I don't believe her. Yeah. We, we've seen it in the carbon tax at a $50 a ton. Now it's $170 a ton. Time and time again, they come back with something worse. Yeah. And this is not, I am not willing to farm if they are going to take away a nutrient and a tool like fertilizer. Away Do you from think farmers. they're seeing anything in the Netherlands and other places where farmers, never mind the truck convoy, these are farmers who say, we're going to shut down the economy if you guys don't give your head a shake and figure out what this means? I sure hope they're listening and they're watching. I, I can't really fathom why the Canadian government would take out their binoculars and look across to Europe and say, we must do what they are doing. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit insulting yes, as, as, in the as first a farmer in this, yeah. in this country because we, not to brag, but we are the best. We are the best at what we do. We adapt new technologies whenever they, whenever they come. We're quite connected in the industry. We're quite connected to the scientists. We're quite connected to the crop protection companies that provide us tools. We're quite connected to the fertilizer industries and the grain companies. And if there was something better out there, we would know about it. You'd already be doing it. We'd already be demanding it or asking for it or bringing it in or learning more about it. And it's insulting I say that because I'm convinced that our government doesn't fully comprehend the advancements that the industry has adopted over the last 20 or 30 years. That's what I think is really important. I mean, when you go and, and I mean, I live in the middle of a farming community and my neighbors are are farmers, the equipment, the money that they put into this equipment, I mean, the the combines, the the pieces of machinery are a million bucks. These are big investments. This is like houses in Toronto, right? And and it does, it, it, it is using every cent and every inch to best purpose. How much seed do you need here? How much fertilizer do you need here? What needs, needs water? It's, it's all on a computer screen. I mean, I not, not everybody gets to farm that way, but most of the big successful farmers have to and must to, meet, to make the best of that piece of ground, which is shrinking. To be the most efficient. I mean, yeah. mo- anybody with a strong business acumen would look at farming, you know, big or small, the yeah. return on investment, the ROI is yeah. very, very, very small. Yeah. And we do it because it's, a, it's for over generations. We're not looking for a quick return on our investment. Your right. Canada Pension Plan is divesting of their land. Why? Because it doesn't give them the return on the investment that they were hoping for. It's not quick. It's not fast. In two quarters. It's generations. (laughs) Yeah. Every generation of farmer before me, on the jolly side and on the nagel side, has done their best to leave the land in better shape for the next generation than it was left to them. That's always the goal. But it's over a generation. Yeah. It's long term. But that speaks to the insulting part that you're talking about. I mean, it's in your best interest. It is, of course, in ours as well as a consuming public for for you to leave the land or keep the land in good shape so that you can keep growing the stuff that we eat. I mean, if you abuse the land, you don't make money. We don't eat. Correct. And, and I find the conversations with, with our minister today and with our prime minister to be condescending in that capacity because they, they give these presentations, they give these speeches, mm-hmm. they send out these you know, statements about environment and reduction, but they clearly are not up to date. They are still looking at agriculture through that old red barn, yep. pitchfork kind of 
Yeah. Old, the yeah, farmer with uh, the straw in the his The farmer teeth. in the Dell. Yeah. They're still opening up that children's book. Yeah. Thinking that that is where we're at today and, and why let us help the farmers be better at what they do. Yeah. It's incredibly condescending because we are better at what we do every day. And that I, I don't want to leave the impression that we're perfect or that agriculture has a halo over our head. We've, we have made mistakes. We've mm -hmm. made mistakes in chemistry reviews. We've, made, we've just made mistakes and we own that. And that's why I don't chastise the public or the consumers for asking us questions. Because right. when they ask us questions, it leads us to better ways of doing things. Yeah. But it, that's not the same as a government who is imposing policies that don't work, that are, that are absolutely not going to achieve the goals that they set. I'm, I'm tired of the political game. Yeah. I, I like to work within it. You know, I, I'm a policy wonk. I thoroughly enjoy it. But I'm tired of the rhetoric. I'm tired of you know, them coming back and saying, that's not what we meant. Don't feel bad. It's just a target. It's yeah. too condescending for my liking. And, and I, I think everybody, as you quite rightly cited, the, um, the carbon tax issue. I mean, there are exemptions for farmers. But honestly, if you have to dry grain, you pay the carbon tax on the energy that you use to do that. Yeah. And in this climate, it's a given. Well, if you, uh, freight has always been one of our biggest expenses. Right. At these prices, fertilizer is right up there. But there's carbon tax on freight. Well, I guarantee you the railways and the trucking companies do not just absorb that cost. Mm -hmm. That cost comes back to farmers. So in every capacity, because what I grow is traded on the world market, I don't have the luxury of just upping the sticker price. Right. Well, you know, there's inflation. Well, there's a yeah. new tax. I just have to up the price of everything I grow. It doesn't work that way for me. I have to take the prices on the world market. So as a farmer, I'm competing on the world stage. And I'm happy to do that. I, yeah. welcome, I welcome the opportunity to do that because we know that we're good here in Canada. We can compete. But if a farmer in Australia who is growing exactly the same things as me, or a farmer across the U.S. border who is growing exactly the same things as that me. That has a longer growing season, perhaps. Sometimes, <laughs> but if they're not subject to, yeah. you know, the handcuff that is carbon tax or this new fertilizer reduction regime or anything else that comes from government, if they are not subject to that, I am put at a disadvantage and I can't compete as well, which is infuriating me because... At the, in the same breath, we have a government who has a lofty goal for agriculture to increase our exports. They, mm -hmm. uh, like 55% in the next few years, they have told agriculture, we must increase our exports. The single worst thing you can do for agriculture is to reduce our fertilizer, is to tell us that we have to do that without the nutrients. We will never meet that target. Right. And, and there's just no, not that I need gratitude from, from our government. I really don't. Uh, the less that comes from government for me, the better. But understanding might help. An, an understanding would, would help. I don't even require an appreciation, even though we contribute substantially to the yeah. GDP and the jobs and everywhere else. I don't even require that. Well, and there's this even this larger issue, too, and, and I heard a farmer talking about it the other day on the radio, which is, look, you know, if you impose this, we'll probably survive, at least some of us will. The prices will go up for all the consumers, but then we won't be feeding the rest of the world, which is what government also says it wants to do. It wants to be socially generous and acceptable and, and take our Afri our. our product to countries like Africa where there's need or now what we're going to see is Europe with the Ukraine situation. Uh, the, the so world, the world hunger conversation fascinates me a little bit. There's been a lot of work done by organizations like the Center for Food Integrity mm -hmm. uh, and they've been asking consumers, Canadian consumers for over a number of years and time and time again when it comes to what Canadian consumers are worried about on the food and agriculture right. space, they're worried about uh, high food prices, yep. and they're worried about the price of healthy foods. They're worried about health and safety. But when we ask them directly about feeding the world, no. It doesn't rank anywhere near the top of their concerns. 
which mm. is which seems is shocking. It seems yep. seems very un-Canadian to me. Yes, honest. it does. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have a government who is saying we must help. And now, you know, since the last study that I read, now we have this war in the Ukraine. Yeah. And I'm very interested to see if that will change some of the Canadian values and if they'll be more interested in learning about starvation and world hunger, even if they're not. I still go back to their initial, what do I care about? Yep. That's high food prices. But Exactly, and, and we're living through inflationary times. But this food security issue is for real. It is real. <laughs> it's not just, I, I, do you remember? I, I remember as a child watching, uh, you know, the, the hungry children yeah. with the flies the all over the face. And, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, it was heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. Yeah. That is very, very, very real yeah. right now. And it's a looming crisis. And I do not throw around that word often. Yeah. But I, I sit as an international director for the Global Farmer Network. And that is a group of farmers. There's, about, there's close to 300 of us who have common interests. And it's we're farmers. We're farming today. And we share with each other knowledge that we have, innovations right. that we have. But we agree basically on two things that farmers should have access to technology. Mm -hmm. So if it's available here and it's working, another farmer around the world should have access to that. That's a geopolitical issue. Lots of countries, you know, we saw in Sri Lanka where they decided right. we're going to go organic. So we will fight against that for the farmers there. And we agree that what we grow should be traded. Yeah. And those trade agreements should be continuously evolving. We should be looking at those trade agreements so that they make sense for farmers. And I can tell you that they're, the, I mean, I'm very privileged. I live here in Canada. I, I couldn't be luckier to have been born here in Canada. Yep. And even during, you know, COVID crisis, yep. even during high food prices, there will always be 17 boxes of cereal in my pantry. Right. You know, I am that privileged. But that is not the case around the world. And I hope that people begin to understand that when they see those prices rising, it's that's not a Canadian issue that is happening because yeah. of supply, supply around the world. Yeah, and that is also an issue in, in a lot of homes in Canada too, but you're, you're quite right on, on the, the trade front. The, on, on the infrastructure side, because that's also um, an issue, as you say, it, the grain has to move. Yeah. We see the problems that we have on the pipeline discussion or LNG terminals, all of the things we say we want to do, which is help Europe, and we've got all this energy, but of course we have no way to get it to them. Um, is that an issue? Yeah, let's, if we break it down, we're harvesting today. So the crop that we get that we harvest goes gets put into a bin mm -hmm. and then once we have the opportunity to sell it it gets put into a truck a big semi truck super beach semi truck it goes on the highway from the from yeah. our farm to a grain elevator right from the grain elevator or a terminal the big yeah, great yeah. big terminal if yeah. you're lucky small town elevators yeah. if, if that's what's near you and then we wait for the trains and that grain gets mixed and pulled and it gets put onto a train and the train takes it typically let's let's go to vancouver with that train yeah. we're going all the way to the port now it has to go all the way through the middle of vancouver and all their traffic nightmares that they have in in the city that it has or some to blockades along yep. the way about yep. some There's protests all kinds yeah. of people uninterested and now we're farmers are also fighting for space on the trains because the you know, the energy that's not being put in a pipeline, yep. the oil that's not being put in a pipeline is now going on those trains. So we right. have more competition there to move our, our grains. Now it has to go back into another elevator in the port of Vancouver. And from that, from that elevator, it goes on to a vessel. And that vessel goes all the way across the water to its final destination. And it doesn't, the logistics don't stop there. Then there's, you know, foreign logistics. Right. So the transportation piece of our agriculture story is incredible yep. it's also incredibly vulnerable and requires a lot of money and foresight and that where you and i met at canada west foundation we yep. were talking about trade and infrastructure right. and the lack of vision that our current government has for that infrastructure plan so now i mean the government can tell us to be as efficient as possible and to grow more and to increase all of that if we can't move it 
get it to market, <laughs> then what good is it going to do? No, exactly. So it, it's a huge problem, and I, I hope when Canadians hear the word infrastructure and they hear the word trade, they hear the words transportation, I hope they know that it directly affects them. Yeah. It's not just an agriculture issue. It will directly affect those rising food prices. And every time there's a delay or a, a problem with, with the transportation at any point in the game, quality suffers and cost goes up. And reputation. Yeah. You know, the, that was another thing we discussed that night, was Canada's reputation has been damaged substantially over the last 10 years. And that's for labor strikes, for blockades, protesting. All of that is, that, that's news that makes, around, that makes it yep. around the world. Yep, Everybody sure. hears that once again, Canada can't deliver. So even if we can, even if we do make vast improvements that take time, our reputation has been damaged. And when that happens, the world isn't sure that they should do business with Canada. What a terrible place for us to be in right now yeah. when the world needs everything that we grow. And more. And they're questioning whether or not they should do business with us because they don't know if we can deliver. The other issue that sort of is imposed on everything is, is the, the climate question. I think everybody, most particularly farmers, <laughs> are... Um, attuned to the climate every single day affects what you do and your outcomes and your product and all the rest of it so you need to be climate conscious and and that is just it, it, it's at the core of what you do really so when you see policies that come down that say like the um fertilizer issue we were talking about or like the carbon tax or uh, cows we can't have too many more cows because they pollute the air it just seems again it's one of those conversations which may make sense in Ottawa and it really sounds bizarre when you were on a farm in Saskatchewan yeah, it's, it to me it's just indicative of that communication gap mm -hmm. that rural urban divide that we've experienced and I, I have worked hard and, and so many of my farming colleagues have worked yep. hard over the last you know 15 20 years to try to bridge that gap mm -hmm. you know social media has allowed more farmers to be interacting with the public you know <laughs> if I was to go back and ask my my grandma right now is 96 and I have lots of conversations with her. Yep. Uh, and she even was three years ago now. I think she was 93 at the time. And she came with me. I love to go to schools yeah. to talk to kids about agriculture and farming. And my grandma came with me. And she's a superstar, <laughs> I'm telling you. And she, I have a great picture of her holding a, a tractor, a toy tractor, that was something that she would have driven back yeah. in her day. And here's me holding my big shiny one with lots more wheels and lots and more computers. horsepower. <laughs> yeah, computers and <laughs> screens and all of that. It's just such an amazing story for yes. us to tell. Yes. But, and I, I like to think at the end of the day that we might have had an impact on those kids and that their, their version, their picture of what agriculture is about might be a little bit different. And wouldn't it be awesome if we had, you know, smarter consumers coming out of high school mm -hmm. than we do today? Mm -hmm. But it's such a big task. Yeah. And after this many years, I have to sit and ponder, you know, are we making an impact? Are we, are we moving the needle at all when it comes to sharing the good news story that agriculture has to share? Media is tough on us, like really, yeah. really tough. They prefer to share the bad stories. They prefer to share, you know, the crisis. They prefer to share those, the negative stories. And it's an uphill battle for us to continuously react and defend agriculture. And, and we shouldn't be in defense of it. The whole country should be just so incredibly this, proud. I know of the, what this we should do. Be, we are the poster child for yeah. environmentalism. Farmers are the original environmentalists. They care more about the land and the food and the water and the air than anybody else. It, it's it's how we live. Yeah, it's it's you kind of have to. Maybe you need to take Grandma to the cabinet room. <laughs> <laughs> she would be up for that. She's pretty feisty. <laughs> yeah. To have that discussion. So part of it is education, for sure. I was just telling this story again the other day about a piece of legislation in which they declared that bread was unhealthy and gave some speeches about that. And, and there was literally a disconnect when I talk about wheat farmers and bread and the ability to trade a product that's been um, described as unhealthy, it, there, was, there was a disconnect. Like, 
It's almost like bread comes from the store. What are you talking about? What's that got to do with farmers? Are we really still that far behind in terms of people connecting the dots in terms of where this stuff comes from? Yes, I think we are. In fact, I, <laughs> I wish I, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I give a lot of credit to people who want to learn more. Mm. The challenge is where they're getting their information isn't always the, the best sources of information. Yeah. And that's why for so many years we've been encouraging farmers to take it upon themselves to make themselves available for these conversations yeah. in the hopes that we could move the needle uh, again if I'd asked my grandma yeah you know about hey you know did you did you post your blog about the frost today <laughs> you know, th- that's not something she had to do in her lifetime it's not right. something my dad had to do my mom had to do in their farming career it's it's upon it upon this generation of farmers yeah. to do that and just like I struggled with as a high school student, I didn't know that being a good communicator was part of the skill set that farmers had to have. Right. Because it wasn't. It's only it brand wasn't. new. In the right. University of Farmer, yeah. you didn't have to talk to people. In fact, there's lots of people that say farmers are who they are because they don't really like people. Right. They, they prefer to live socially distanced way before COVID. Well, and they up. had to solve problems on their own. If you're in the middle of a farm and, uh, in you know, harvest and a piece of machinery breaks down, you have to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's it's scary to me the the amount of sway that our leadership has according to you know public direction. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think back to the conversations around the Canada's Food Guide, yeah, you know the fact that that's not entirely based on nutrition and science and good health, but more about lobby groups and etc you know those people of influence influence used to be one of my favorite words i now almost hate it (laughs) because it's so overused and it's it's unappealing to me now but i still believe there is a mechanism for farmers to have influence over the conversation and i would i would hate for the day to come where i felt that having conversations as farmers with with decision makers and with average consumers wouldn't be helpful we are the experts in what we do that's the thing. How do you, um, I know you have a series of organizations, the Western Wheat Growers, all of those things that you're involved in and some international ones at all as well. Uh, how do you communicate with policymakers, with government? I mean, is there any kind of direct line? Is there any time that you can sit down with the Minister of Agriculture and say, do you understand what we do here? Yes, of course. Of yeah. course. And, and I encourage all of my farming colleagues to find ways in which they can influence. There isn't a prescription for it. Yeah. And I, I want people to do it authentically. Yeah. So if social media is your thing and you're interested in it, then use that skill set and that energy to share your story through social media. It's not mine. I don't the, prefer the that. The quick dick McQuick. Yes, I love <laughs> quick dick McDick. He's, the, he's this absolutely will be a reference that does. maybe some people don't understand. <laughs> Stand, but well, he they is, have to look him up. Yeah, you yeah, have to look brilliant. him up. Brilliant at what he does. Yeah, he's a farmer, and he talks about the real issues that farmers face, and he uses social media incessantly, and it is a way of communicating and educating. He's become a, a rock yeah. star that truly represents a lot of the views yeah. that farmers and ranchers have. Yeah. But if your area of influence is with kids, you know, yes. like I talked about with my grandma, then go yeah. and influence in that capacity. Yeah. If you have an interest in policy work, which I do, there's a, there's a number of organizations that are already representing you, either by default, because you're paying into a checkoff dollar, so right. your Sask Wheat, your Sask Pulse Growers, all of those provincial organizations, yeah. Alberta Wheat and Barley, and then the, there's umbrella organizations. I could do an entire like pie chart <laughs> of the organizations that represent farmers. Yeah. The voluntary ones, like the Western Canadian Wheat Growers, I mean, I'm stepping down as a director this year. It'll be my 20th year with this organization. Started off as president. I'm back now as a director, just kind of recycling me because I, (laughs) I have. I always said I would leave. Because you talk good (laughs) out there, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I always thought that I would leave once I was able to give more to the organization than I took away. And now I realize that's an impossible task. Right. So I have to find other ways that I can influence and bring in new directors. But those are the ways, I mean, that organization, the Wheat Growers, that, they have punched above their weight since the beginning of time. This is a small group of farmers who are very attuned mm-hmm. to the, the policies that are coming our way. They may not even be here yet. Yeah. Com- there's a sense of foreboding, yeah. and they want a piece of that. They're great debaters. They're great um, conversationalists. They're also real farmers today. 
that know if this policy hits me, I can't be a, as good a farmer as I am today. It must change. Or here's something that I need to to have to make yeah. me better at what I do. I have a great, absolutely great relationship with our provincial ministry of agriculture in all of their departments. If there's their communications departments, in their agrology departments, in their in their crops departments, their science departments, and directly to our ag minister. I really give like two big thumbs up to Dave Merritt. He really has opened up the lines of communications for a while. Through a COVID. farmer. Yeah, yeah, he just gets it. He gets yeah. it, has weekly calls yeah. with, with farmers from organizations. He really listens. He, re- he actually does reply to the text messages like Mother Nature does not, but Dave Merritt does. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have influence over the weather. I've asked him about that. <laughs> but he is really, really trying and, and has some, some good people on his team. And I would say that's still the case in Ottawa as well, that that – farmer they want to hear from farmers and if i could get to ottawa more i would if it is kind of busy when they when they start musing about the fertilizer policy just as you're all going into harvest yeah which is kind of a busy time of year it's hard to then engage yeah, it's it's no different than uh, Motley Crew coming to the prairies in on September fourth. I have not heard the end of that from my thirteen year old daughter. No, we can't go to a concert in the middle of September, Ottawa. No, I can't get there to talk about yes. this really important issue because we are busy doing what we do best. Yeah. but please stop. Yeah, stop until to, I can get there. Until we can get there. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your your day to day life because you have these thousand other things, all <laughs> yeah. these groups you're involved with. So that does take a lot of time. But you're also a wife and a mother and all of these things. Yeah. Uh, what's your day like? Yeah, I I I truly am grateful for my life. <laughs> I have a, I'm very very you know uh, busy and connected, and I prefer it that way. It keeps me really energized. My husband and I are raising two tractor driving, gunslinging, dirt bike riding teenage daughters. And <laughs> we are having so much fun doing that. Uh, little mini use. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's a lot of both of us in there. Yeah. A lot of um, you know, energy to see the whole world, but a lot of passion for where we live, both yeah. of them. Uh, 16 and 13. Oh, wow. And they help an enormous <laughs> yes. amount on the farm. And we, we couldn't be more grateful to have them and to be raising them where we are. We, we give them exposure, or at least we try to give them a lot of exposure to what is happening in the world yep. while also feeling grateful. You know, COVID was such an eye-opener uh, in terms of gratitude because you wouldn't yep. want to be anywhere but our farm in the middle of, of that pandemic. But we, we try to travel with them. We try to expose them to, oh, I maybe shouldn't say this, but we talk politics on our farm. <laughs> oh, know, like no farmer table, ever has done that. We talk <laughs> politics. Yeah. Um, and we encourage, we, we just, we encourage them to be And they've probably thinking. shot a gopher or two in their Most lifetime. Most certainly they have. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're quite good shots, actually. <laughs> yeah. I remember I was uh, hosting at, at the Western Agribition. Yeah. I was the host for some of the agriculture sessions, and it happened to be on opening day mm-hmm. uh, for my daughter. So my husband and daughter <laughs> were out hunting on opening day, and I, I got up to introduce the, our ag minister. Dave Merritt was there to give opening remarks. So I left the table with my notes on my cell phone. I went up. I introduced Dave. By the time I got back, there was already a picture with, here is Claire, already has shot her first buck. In, like, <laughs> oh, within wow. an hour yep. of opening day, I was quite upset with my husband because he is setting her up for a lifetime of expectations <laughs> that that is how hunting season should go. Uh, it was not the same case for my 13-year-old. Yeah, this is, just, or they might not get drawn that year or whatever. <laughs> yeah, for the, yeah. But that does mean you have to talk about gun control and these oh, other things that absolutely. come up. The, the safety of guns is of yep. the utmost importance at our, in our family. Uh, we actually, we used to run a hunting lodge, my husband and okay. I and his parents. That was one of the ways that we diversified early on when we were trying to grow yep. our farm operation. And uh, it was another way to manage risk is to have another business. Yep. And we, on a bad year when the hail comes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the great start to our marriage. You know, we've got a new house <laughs> and we had eight 
hunters living with us for eight weeks on Sunday to Sunday. We'd have a new batch coming in. We used to have the Minneapolis <laughs> direct flight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, into Regina. So that was our Sunday to Sunday. We'd have hunters coming in for a week and they would live with us in our blissful <laughs> newly married you know, company. Wash the sheets and get ready for the new gang. Oh my gosh. It was insa- <laughs> pure insanity. But yeah. that's that's always how David and I have operated. You yeah. know, we're, we operate full throttle. Yeah. All, every day, all day. And, you know, we've accomplished a lot in our life. We've made a lot of mistakes and we've learned from those. And we're having a really a great time living life on the farm and raising kids there. And staying and there. it is a good life at a certain size. I mean, I think that's, it, it has to make business sense now. You can't just, for, you know, farm yeah. a quarter section and feed your animals and carry on like it's an expensive business yeah i know like at at the beginning of the podcast you talked about the this how farm sizes are increasing and that can be kind of scary for consumers they hear about corporate farms yeah and that that's that's really a myth that i try to bust in every capacity because 97 percent of the farms in in canada are owned and operated by families. By the farmer. There is very yeah. few corporate farms. And there's yeah. very few corporate farms because it doesn't pay. Yeah. That return on your investment is not high enough yeah. for corporate farms to function. There's been a few that have tried, and there's still a few that are trying. There's some some really large-sized farms now. On the yeah, dairy. and you see them come in with a series of combines that will move from field yeah, to field. But that a, doesn't make them a corporate farm. Right. It's yeah. a great model. Yeah. And, and our family is incorporated. We incorporated for tax purposes. Like yeah. A lot of businesses do, but I assure you that we work with our father-in-law and my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my mother-in-law, yep. you know, 360 days of the year. And then we sit down for Christmas. And yeah, take a break. Right. We are a family farm like anybody's definition would entail, but it's not scary. I don't want to leave the impression with people that because farms are increasing and that we are losing you know, numbers of farmers, yeah. that that's something to worry about. The people who are doing it today are doing a very good job of it. Yeah, and doing it differently. That's right. Our, our farm has been expanding. It's not because you know, we are running around, you know, making, you know, insisting that small farm operations must leave. It's because they want to retire. Yeah. They want to have, in fact, when it's my time to retire, I want to have lots of opportunities to sell yeah. to, to various buyers in the area, to new young farmers that or are Or maybe your two girls expansion. will just take it over. You Absolutely. don't know. Absolutely. That succession plan is, is potential if, if yeah. our girls decide that they want to, to come home to the family farm. So it's not it's nothing to worry about. Yes, it, it means there are fewer farmers and there are fewer of us making decisions on the farms. But trust us, we we do we have done this for generations. We agriculture has expanded and innovated and changed all of these yeah. years. And it's to me it's just not something that you should be fr- afraid of. We've spent a lot of time today um, talking about what you need to do and how you need to communicate with policymakers and consumers and all the rest of it. What, what is it that you want those of us that aren't on the farm to do? Well, first I, w- I would say consider that farmers are the experts in their field, and if you have questions, go directly to the experts. I know it's, it's well, it's very hypocritical of me to say that because, you know, if uh, when my kids were little and there was a rash that showed up on a butt, I was Googling that. <laughs> so I understand that yeah. in other capacities, people are going to Google what is glyphosate or they're going to Google, you know, genetically modified crops yeah. and they may not like what they see. But in, consider including farmers in your network and in your areas of expertise and ask them those questions. And, and also consider that Farmers really, truly care about the work that we do. We care about about the land. We care about the next generation. And we're making the best decisions today that we can. That's what sustainability means to us. And it doesn't matter if the public comes out with new fancy words for it. Mm-hmm. Environmentalism, sustainability. You know, they, they come out with all kinds of fancy words yeah. that the farming community is not using. We just try to do the right thing. And every year, we're trying to make the best decisions that we can to do the right thing. It doesn't mean we're always right. You know, yeah. we, we have made mistakes in the past. We're, we're doing our best. So it's okay to ask us questions because it challenges us. And I would, I would suggest that from the farming side of it, 
it's okay to admit when we've done something wrong mm -hmm. and it's okay to learn from that and do better. You know, it's a, it would be an impossible feat for us to each and every year. You know, we, they, they talk a lot right now about the 4R nutrient program. That's what the farming community is going back at the ministry. Yeah, explain so, that. Yeah, 4R. So it's like you have to do the right thing, but you have yeah. to apply the right products in the right place at the right time. Yeah. What I want the public to know is that farmers have so many decisions to make yeah. every single day and we're doing the best that we can to make those decisions for the bigger picture and if you have questions you can come to us to ask us those questions so you would invite the environment minister to ride his bike out here and spend some time with you and <laughs> no question <laughs> at the moment there's no place for you to plug in that car <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's the whole, that's a whole other topic. Yeah, it's a whole other. It has just been great having this conversation with you, Sherilyn. Thank you so much. I know it's a busy time for you, and that you've uh, taken time out of your day to do this. But I know it's your mission to educate people and bring them in and help them understand. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, I give a lot of. Uh gratitude to my family back home there is a grain cart sitting in the corner of the field without me in it and for so many years they have indulged my extracurricular activities activities yeah, yeah. and the policy work and I think our own farm has seen firsthand some of the benefits of the policy work that is done. Yeah, that's done. Through you these have to do both. Yeah, yeah. Well, we just celebrated 10 years of marketing freedom yes. uh, from the Canadian Wheat Board Monopoly. That was just a, a great big win for policy work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not always as rewarding as that. Sometimes yeah. there's a lot of issues that we work on that the public never really hears about. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly rewarding to know that in, things have kind of come full circle for me. Yeah. You know, I was that high school teenage girl who didn't think that there was any any opportunity farming wasn't cool yeah there was no opportunity yeah. for me to be in agriculture and i've come to realize that all of the skill sets that i bring to the table are are necessary and they're fun and i've been welcomed wholeheartedly into the yeah. industry and I've, I've had there's some, a lot of women farmers now oh absolutely yeah yep yeah. yeah, there sure is there, there's a lot of women that paved the way for me yeah and and it's it's no shock around a board table in agriculture to see a lot yeah. of women there and and from my experience it's been such a good one i've really had surrounded myself with tremendous people in all fairness I think when I first showed up on the scene, it, I mean, obviously I was a woman. That was the most obvious thing about me. But <laughs> and a dancer. Yeah, and a da <laughs> I, I did, yeah, tap my way through a lot of meetings, actually. But I think my inexperience was something that could have been harshly criticized, and uh, it wasn't. It was welcomed, and they allowed me to learn yeah. about policy work and learn the pieces of the puzzle all along the way. And uh, for that, I am eternally in debt. Yeah. I never really felt a lot of uh, bias towards me as a woman sitting at the table. If, if it was there, I chose to ignore it. Right. But they rightfully so could have criticized the lack of critic uh, the lack of experience yeah. that I had. And that's normal when you're 23. In, in any business. Yeah, you, you are going to have absolutely. an experience. And instead of um, criticizing me for that, they allowed me to learn and make a lot of mistakes and uh, learn from that. So I'm that's Forever a lesson for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now I'm just having a whole lot of fun doing it. Sherilyn Jolly Nagel, who went back to Moss Bank, Saskatchewan, married her high school, well, grade four sweetheart, apparently, <laughs> and gave up the wildlife uh, at club meds, teaching people how to line dance, and you're making a real impact. I just want to say thank you for what you do, and to every farmer out there, um, we we, we don't stop and think about it on a daily basis, and we really should. So thank you. Yeah, well, I encourage your audience to think about think yeah. about the food that they're buying and, yeah. and who's growing it yeah. and continue to ask us those hard questions. And what their life is like. Yeah. Sherilyn Jolly-Nagel, Farming in Canada 2022. That's it for this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We'll be back soon.